Today's episode is sponsored by Femex. We'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Hey, everyone. It's Bully Esquire. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm really excited about our guest. It's Peter Van Valkenburg, the Director of Research at Coin Center. So, hey, Peter, how you doing? Hey, Bully. I'm great. It's, it's really weird to be speaking with you rather than just reading your tweets. <laughs> yeah, see, the voice tweet feature was sort of an introduction to this. I've, I've sort of surfed my way into all audio now. Josh Cincinnati put me off of that completely. So I don't, I don't know. I don't even listen to this. <laughs> oh yeah. His, uh, his podcasts on Twitter. Those are his wonderful. Voice. Yeah. <laughs> Self-identified. That's right. <laughs> well, before we jump in, I always like to remind my listeners that, you know, this isn't legal advice. It's not investment advice. We're just having a conversation for informational purposes. And, you know, if, if you have any questions, obviously contact your, your attorney or financial advisor. And buy um, banana coin. Right. Tons of banana coin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So again, thanks for joining us, Peter. You're a a well-known person around the space and it's exciting to have you on. I thought maybe you could just give a little background as to how you got into cryptocurrency and sort of what what led you down this this crazy path we all took. Yeah. So, um, you you know, I went to law school back in 2012, 2000, or 2011, 2014. Gosh, my brain is just going. I'm getting that old now. Um, and before that, I was trying to be a working actor in New York City, which we don't have to discuss because it's just a sad story, as is often the case with people trying to be actors in New York City. Uh, so I thought I'd get a real degree, um, did grad school work at, at NYU for law, wanted to write about technology law because the way I got um, my bills paid when I was trying to be an actor was building people like portfolio websites for their headshots and stuff like that. So I got into the internet pretty hard. Not that I'd already, you know, I'd always been interested in the internet from, from being a kid uh, growing up in the, in the nineties. But uh, I thought like, okay, I want to do tech law. This is, this is something I'm good at. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the internet. I'm interested in how the internet affects freedom and free speech and privacy and around this time, you know, Bitcoin becomes a bit more widely known. Uh, I think I first heard about it in like 2011 and was very skeptical and then uh, tried to set up a mining, uh, a mining rig <laughs> in like 2012, <laughs> but decided it was more prudent to study for my contracts exam. Sure. That was, as it turns out, not the more prudent uh, <laughs> bad. Yeah, I know if we want to all just mine Bitcoin in 2012, I think we wouldn't even be here. Although actually I'm not sure I would have been that competitive. It was, it was already, uh, that was already GPU time, maybe sure. even early ASIC time. I can't remember now. Um, but anyway, graduated from law school, came to Washington DC on a Google policy fellowship to work with a telecommunications think tank called tech freedom. They're still around. They're very cool. They focus on like copyright and FCC law. Um, did a little bit of work with them, but it wasn't, wasn't long after that, honestly, that Jerry Brito, the executive director of Coin Center, 
Uh, and you know, we'd, we'd known each other sort of through the internet, through Twitter <laughs> and through mutual acquaintances at my undergrad at George Mason. Um, so we'd known each other for a while, but we weren't close. So he comes to me and he says, Hey, Peter, uh, congratulations on, on, on finishing uh, law school. <laughs> Would you like to be director of research at a brand new Bitcoin think tank? And, you know, I, I think that was by far the weirdest job offer I've ever gotten <laughs> and also the most amazing and awesome. So I owe a huge debt to Jerry because I immediately said yes, uh, and sort of had to disappoint my colleagues at Tech Freedom. And, you know, I don't, I'd only been like on staff for like a month after the fellowship ended. Um, but it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. And so been doing that at Coin Center ever since. So it's five years now, which is insane to me to actually think about that. I've, I've had the same job for five years and it's been this particular job. And then um, about, I guess, a year or two into Coin Center, Zuko uh, Wilcox from, mm -hmm. you know, the Zcash project. Uh, reached out to Jerry and I just to, you know, we, we talk policy, we know who to talk to at FinCEN or the regulatory agencies in DC. And he's thinking of, um, you know, you know, building this team at the electronic coin company to publish the first version of the Zcash protocol. And so he's just looking for, you know, like the down low on, on how regulators are thinking about privacy coins and things like that back in 2000 and uh, what, 2013. No, not 2013, <laughs> 2015. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got to know Zuka pretty well. Uh, I always had a kind of a strict policy of not taking any paid jobs at any coin specific projects, because I think it sort of coin center is supposed to represent all cryptocurrencies uh, as public goods to government. That's like our objective. So I don't want to be biased. Um, but when Andrew Miller, who's another guy associated with the Zcash project approached me and said, Hey, you know, there's the for-profit that makes the Zcash protocol, but we need a nonprofit to sort of also build maybe a rival client so that it's always free and open to the public. Uh, Andrew asked me if I'd, if I'd be a member of the board of directors for that, the Zcash foundation, which emerged the next year. And, you know, I've, I felt like a non-compensated board position is acceptable as far as a, as a, as a low-grade conflict compared to something paid. So I've been a board member of the Zcash Foundation for, uh, I guess, two years now. And I felt like that project was important because I think privacy is one of the under, um, understudied, under-explored uh, areas of cryptocurrencies because Bitcoin is so notoriously public by default. And it's important that we find ways to build private um, digital cash, uh, whether they're ultimately incorporated into Bitcoin or a layer on top of Bitcoin or a standalone cryptocurrency like Monero or Zcash. I don't care. Mm -hmm. I just want I just want them to be there. You know, I want one of them to work. Sure. So, so I've been this board member of the Zcash Foundation. Um, I really like my fellow board members. I really like Josh Cincinnati, our first executive director. I think yeah, Josh he's done a lot of great work. We're trying to hire a new executive director now, not in a hurry. We're just kind of looking for the right person. Uh, Josh wanted to move on. And so that's where I am right now. Uh, yeah. Great. Yeah. So um, with, with your sort of obligations as a board member of the Zcash foundation, are you involved in like the sort of product offerings and updates to the chain or is it more sort of conceptual, like the direction and focus of the foundation? 
Uh, so, you know, my philosophy of being a board member, not that I've got a lot of experience in this, just the Zcash Foundation board, but also just working with our awesome board at Coin Center is that I want to be hands off. Um, you know, we're there as fiduciaries to make sure that the, that this thing, which is a nonprofit and, and gets that status on the condition that it does work for the public good. We just need to make sure that the work is always truly for the public good and that there isn't, you know, some, some sort of private inurement to persons because of the foundation's activities. And honestly, that's not too difficult in the cryptocurrency space. Well, scratch that. It could be extremely difficult because God knows there's a bunch of scams in the cryptocurrency (laughs) space. But Zcash, I feel like is a pretty honest project with a lot of like talented academics Mm-hmm. And most of the work that Zcash has done that's of great benefit to the community has been in pioneering the use of like very uh, out there cryptography, like zero knowledge proofs mm-hmm. um, and their integration into blockchains. And so, you know, it's not too hard then if your mission is just to further that academic research and further the creation of open source software to make sure that the foundation is doing what it should be doing, because those are the only things that they do really. Sure. When we were applying for our nonprofit status, um, we're a 501c3, we're a public, public charity specifically. And I think the first in the U.S. to be focused on building cryptocurrencies. Um, the original, we had a really good lawyer. Um, his name is Keith. He's at Brian Cave. Um, I highly recommend him. But he came, he came to us first with a fairly conservative application for charitable purpose that was like, we want to do public education focused on cryptocurrencies. Because public education is, if you've ever done any nonprofit law, mm-hmm. you know that public education is like the thing you tell the IRS, no matter what you're actually going to be doing. And, you know, and, and that's fair because we do do public education at the foundation about the value of cryptocurrencies that are private. That said, I don't think that's our main thing. I thought like, look, we're actually going to be building public infrastructure and there are public infrastructure, nonprofits, public charities that like they clean up public waterways. They build, um, you know, like fire roads and things like that. Things that would be underfunded otherwise, um, that, that are really public infrastructure. And to me, cryptocurrencies that are private should be public infrastructure. They should be like a a magical tube between my computer and your computer that I can send money through without anybody else learning the details of the transaction. Because that is a fundamentally important piece of infrastructure that shouldn't be controlled by one corporation like Venmo, that shouldn't be controlled like by one government, whether it's the US government or the Chinese government, which are the two likely candidates there, that should truly be this open infrastructure for the public good. And so when Keith came to me with our first addendum to our 1023 form for charitable purpose, and it said public education, I said, no, you know, let's, let's also add a whole like three paragraphs on building digital public infrastructure. Hmm. And, 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 you know, and, and Keith <laughs> right. being a good lawyer was like, are you sure? Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes they look askance at that kind of thing, like see the Linux foundation being a trade association, not being a public charity. Um, they're, they're, the IRS is going to be worried that, you know, actually you're building this to benefit a business, not to benefit the public, because that's how, say, Linux is, is thought of by the IRS. It, it benefits all of these co- corporations that use the Linux operating system. Um, and I said, no, I, I want to, you know, if the IRS looks at us funny, we'll sue them. And that <laughs> might not be the most wise use of, uh, you know, our public funds. But actually, I think it is a wise use of our public funds, because that would further a public mission in itself proving that you can in good faith build public infrastructure that's digital. That's not just physical. And so, yeah, that's, 
that's, that's what we focus on. It, Sorry, to give you a more specific answer to your question of like whether we're involved with the actual product offerings, you called them. Um, I, I kind of cringe at the word product offering because I, I, again, I feel like what we do is publish open source software and academic research. And that's, that's a product, but it's not like a, a product in the typical capitalist commercial sense. Sure. Um, we are specifically working right now really hard. We've got a bunch of Rust developers at the foundation on a complete standalone Zcash client that's built from the ground up to be completely independent of the electronic coin company's client, um, which is the, the, the currently widely used Zcash client. And so there's some redundancy in that work, but you get the opportunity to clean up a lot of old code and make it faster and better. Uh, and the redundancy is also the point because again, these cryptocurrencies should never be beholden to one for-profit entity or institution or government. So if there's a completely standalone rival Zcash client, that's, that's 10 times better for the, for the ecosystem than there being a single client that everyone just by default uses. Yeah. And if there ever came a point in the future where the Zcash company, the electronic coin company, wanted to put some code into their client that the foundation thought was bad for privacy, in other words, bad for our public facing mission, we would say, you know, sorry, we're going our own separate ways. Now we're going to break consensus compatibility and our version of the Zcash client that the foundation maintains standalone will, will not have that feature that we think is bad. Now sure. I don't see that, oh, that horrible, you know, divergence coming. Uh, Cause I actually think the company does great work, but it was important to us that we sort of have, I think it was in Zuko's word, our own Navy, because you have to have your own Navy to project power across the world. That was the British empire's um, view of things anyway. So like we need a Navy of rust developers <laughs> in order to have our own Zcash client. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, so one, one thing I've heard about Zcash and you know, I'm curious to get your take on this is a yeah. lot of the wallets have not necessarily mandatory shielding, but even uh, transparent addresses are, are sort of default. Do you yeah. guys have a view on sort of getting more shielded transactions occurring on the Zcash network? Because last time I checked, I think it's pretty low, the sort of overall low. percentage used. Yeah, so it, it is low. And that's, that's a totally valid criticism of Zcash where you have this option to make transparent transactions, which is really just nakedly like a Bitcoin transaction because Zcash is originally a fork of Bitcoin mm -hmm. or the shielded transactions, which is most like 90% of the innovation that Zcash brought to the table was these shielded transactions. And a shielded transaction is computationally more difficult because um, you, you have to do proving. You have to actually prove a, a mathematical statement using a zero-knowledge proof, which requires some resources. Now, that said, the resources from the original client versus the resources you'll need to prove a statement in the new client from subsequent updates from sapling and things like that are significantly lower. So now you could actually potentially do it on a mobile phone rather than a, a powerful desktop computer with like 8 gig of RAM or something like that. Um, but I think that... that that resource intensiveness is one thing that's delayed people's adoption of, of wallets with shielded transactions by default or, or even, you know, capable of making shielded transactions. Um, there's also the issue that like some people just don't care about privacy. They'd rather do the easier transaction than make the difficult transaction. I think we can go a lot further and this is a priority of the foundation over the next few years in making it just as easy to make the shielded transaction as the transparent transaction. And then maybe um, sort of uh, version out slowly transparent mm -hmm. transactions altogether. 
But I will say that a, a few things, there is a real use for a transparent transaction because sometimes you want to declare to the world immediately all the details of your transaction. Like for example, if you were making a donation to the Zcash foundation and you wanted a tax exempt status on that donation, that sounds like something where you, you probably, well, you know, anonymous donations aside, which might be important in certain situations, but generally speaking, actually, here's a better example than a donation to the foundation. If the foundation wants to fund a grant to develop some cryptocurrency technology, that should be transparent, right? Cause everyone should know the foundation is using its resources for something and they can investigate that and they can know that. Now we can get there with a shielded transaction by revealing a view key to sort of announce to the world what the transaction is, but a transparent transaction also achieves the same result and it's simpler. So maybe that's the right way to do it. But the main reason why I think we, you know, there's debate in the Zcash community about this and I'm just one voice and just one board member. And I think some of my other board members might disagree with me. I think the main reason we need to preserve transaction, transparent transactions is for uh, regulatory purposes, because I think it, it shows good faith on the part of the technology and the developers of the technology that, you know, we're, we're creating a tool that will allow people to be public and open and their transactions to be auditable and will allow them to be private. And this is this notion of sort of selective disclosure, like people should be able to choose their level of privacy. And maybe that choice is sometimes informed by their regulatory obligations. You know, sure. like if they are an institution that's regulated under the Bank Secrecy Act, maybe they are obligated to make trans uh, transactions more public. Um, ultimately, we shouldn't be doing that with transparent transactions. We should be doing that with shielded transactions and then a view key that's revealed to the regulator or to the public at large. And but I think, you know, this first step of having transparent transactions as a, as a, you know, as an alternative to shielded was the right choice, both from a, you know, building a, a product that works from day one because shielded transactions are somewhat experimental and the classic Bitcoin transactions are tried and tested and also building a product that won't, won't frighten regulators into thinking that we've built a complete black box because there's no intention to build a complete black box. We want a box that gives people the, the privacy they deserve in increments that they desire. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting about the regulator point because I recently saw Gemini switched to allowing shielded transactions yep. to be sent away from Gemini and Gemini is, you know, notoriously one of the most um, compliant and heavily regulated exchanges. Do you have any insight that you can share with us about that decision? I was, I found it fascinating and the community just sort of glossed over it. But in my opinion, that seems like a really big deal in that, you know, the a regulated exchange is willing and yeah. able now to offer outgoing shielded addresses. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. If, if more people cared about privacy, I think more people would recognize it as a watershed moment mm -hmm. in cryptocurrency because it is. Um, you're totally right. Gemini has been, has shown real allegiance to its regulatory obligations and specifically to its regulator in New York City or in New York, the Department of Financial Services. And so, you know, the Zcash community owes Gemini uh, and the Winklevoss twins a real debt, actually, because, you know, those guys, along with, I think, Zuko, um, I, I myself never spoke with the DFS about this, but Zuko and, 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 and the Winklevoss twins had 
a series of meetings with the Department of Financial Services. First, back uh, a few years ago when they were thinking of even offering Zcash support, sure. just for transparent addresses, just the idea of listing Zcash as a coin on their exchange was sort of controversial to some extent back then. Um, and the DFS actually, you know, took it all in uh, as a very reasonable regulator. Um, despite the fact that I don't love the bit license framework, I got to give them credit for being reasonable as to how they enforce it. Yeah. Uh, and they ultimately published a, a short document saying, announcing, uh, yes, we're going to allow Gemini to trade Zcash. And not only that, we think that the privacy features of Zcash are good for consumers in New York. They're good for our, our citizens. Mm -hmm. Citizens deserve privacy. And that's a great statement from a regulator because you got to understand a regulator is balancing the need to protect the privacy of its citizens against the need for transparency into the flow of funds to stop crime and money laundry. And generally, I, I hate to paint with a broad brush, but most regulators, they're, they're not balanced about those two things. They're right, much yeah. more concerned about crime than they are the privacy of their citizens. So DFS gets huge credit for that. And so did the Winklevoss twins and Zuko for lobbying them um, for the right reasons. Uh, and then more recently, and I think this is the fruits of the same groundwork that was laid years ago, as you said, Gemini actually is the first exchange, custodial exchange to offer shielded withdrawals, which is exactly the kind of technology that we would want from all exchanges. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when I take cash out of an ATM, there isn't a billboard in Times Square that says Peter just withdrew $200 in cash. That would be insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's effectively what happens when you take Bitcoin out of Coinbase. The blockchain broadcasts that transaction and it's not hard to figure out who, who is the sender and who is the recipient. So all financial institutions should be doing shielded withdrawals by default to maybe even to honor their obligations under privacy laws like Gramm-Leach-Bliley or, um, or, or European privacy laws. Um, I'm not going to make that case legally strongly, but it's the right thing to do from an ethical standpoint for a custodial exchange to do everything they can to protect the privacy of their customers when they withdraw funds from the exchange and shielded, shielded transactions do that, whereas a normal Bitcoin transaction doesn't. So do you think, maybe you can't say, but do you think the New York regulators gave their blessing for this? Or do you think it's just, okay, they've, they've agreed that we can list Zcash. Now we think, given the amount of diligence we've done and sort of the view key and all of this, that we're able to list yeah. to allow these shielded addresses. Uh, it's not that I can't say, it's just that I actually, I don't know for a fact. Mm -hmm. um, I know folks at the DFS, talked with them about a lot of things, and I know folks at Gemini, and I know folks at, at Zcash, of course. And if I put that all together in my head, I'm pretty sure that there's no way this would have happened without DFS approval uh, at some level. But sure. I, can't, I can't say for a fact that that's what happened. Okay. Well, I guess I'm just going to have to have the Winkleboss twins on my show to, to, <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> um, well, yeah, that, it's an interesting point. And one I've, I've thought a lot about um, over the years, this, and I think it was actually Coin Center that suggested this, that perhaps for banks to hold crypto in sort of a custodial fashion in order to comply with certain regulations, one that you mentioned, Graham Lynch, Bliley, and others that, you know, using 
unshielded cryptocurrencies may actually be a violation of those regulatory schemes. And like you, I haven't really studied that fact, but I think it's an interesting argument, one that sort of swings the burden <laughs> um, sort of away from saying, oh, we need privacy to know we need privacy from sort of a regulatory <laughs> point of view, um, which is an interesting way of approaching it. And one I think that that is, is useful. Um, Another argument I've seen in favor of privacy coins, I think it's Zuku who hits this a lot, is the idea of encryption. So, you know, websites now are all encrypted. You see the little lock bar up in the corner and you know that your information isn't being viewed by some third party. Yeah, I, I heard Zcash sort of compared to that, but for money. And I thought that was a really smart way to put it. So instead of saying, oh, we need privacy and secrecy, we're, you know, doing all of these things that need to be hidden from view. It's like, no, we're just, we're doing business on the internet yeah. and we, we want encrypted transactions. Um, do you, is that something that sort of you guys have latched onto from a communications point of view, or is that more just sort of on the Zcash side? I'd, I'd say it's, it's, it's both. So you're right about the, about coin center making the statements about, you know, maybe banks who deal in crypto should be obligated uh, or already are obligated to use shielded transactions or mixing even, you know, <laughs> like maybe, maybe when JP Morgan gets into Bitcoin, they should be running a, a, a Wasabi wallet type, type <laughs> setup instead of, you know, they should actually be mixing coins because mm -hmm. they have obligations to protect the privacy of their, their users. And we wrote this in our comments to of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency uh, when they were soliciting comments on um, electronic banking activities and even cryptocurrency activities at nationally chartered banks. So we said that. I, I agree with you. Uh, it, I, don't, I think it's an overstatement and I need to study the law more that law already obligates exchanges to do this uh, or, or banks rather. Um, but I think it's an obvious statement that ethically they should be obligated to, because we, again, we would not expect a bank to, to pay for a billboard in Times Square that announces every time a person withdraws money from their account and their name and the amount. That's, that's crazy. That would obviously be a privacy violation. So why isn't a privacy violation when that, that announcement's happening on a blockchain because you didn't shield a transaction? Yeah. Anyway, um, as far as like, the the notion that you know this isn't about like some kind of dark anonymity this is just good business i think that's absolutely a talking point and a genuine one from from the zcash community from the the foundation and from coin center i i i i can think back to when i was a a, a witness and i think it was house financial services subcommittee on capital markets but it might have been another testimony where I was uh, a, a co-witness with, um, no, I wasn't a co-witness with Amber, Amber Balde. She was a witness at a later hearing. But in this hearing, I mentioned Amber Balde, who's now a board member of the Zcash Foundation, but at the time was at JP Morgan's um, blockchain skunk works project. And, block, and, and JP Morgan had actually forked some Zcash code for their, um, what is it, uh, Quora? Quorum, quorum, I think, yeah. Quorum, yeah. For their Quorum um, software, because JP Morgan recognizes that if they're going to do interbank settlement on a blockchain, it better be freaking private. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and so this gets to the point that you were, you were just citing, and I think it's Zuko who was the first to, to make the metaphor. The internet used to be all HTTP, not mm -hmm. HTTPS, secure socket layer protocol. HTTP is just like 
you know, naked internet information traveling over the internet. Uh, any information like your credit card numbers, potentially what you're doing on the website, all of it completely plain text. And if somebody is in the middle of you and the website you're communicating with, they can see it all. And that's insane that for the first 15 years of the internet's existence, that was the way everybody used the internet. Like we used to make fun of people who were like, oh, I wouldn't put my credit card information on a website. I wouldn't buy something over the internet. But actually that person was kind of right, you know? <laughs> Before we had secure socket layer um, and HTTPS to encrypt all of the information as it travels from your computer to say Amazon's servers, it was insane to put all your credit card information on the internet. Mm -hmm. and, and thanks to a number of folks, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation actually deserves a lot of credit for their Let's Encrypt program, where they made it easier for even small website operators to get certificates in order to engage in private you know, uh, web hosting through SSL layer. Um, now everything is uh, encrypted by default. Uh, and, and, and as you said, if you use your Chrome browser and you go to a website that's HTTP instead of HTTPS, it's, it gives you an alert, actually. It right. says, like, this website's probably not secure, and it doesn't give you that nice little green lock icon in the, in the URL bar that says, yeah, this is a safe place to put your credit card information in or any other private information. So just like the Internet moved from this insanely public original protocol to a reasonably specified private protocol. You know, we're not talking about Tor, although actually mm -hmm. Tor would be, everybody should use Tor by default if we're <laughs> gonna go to the next level because it's better than HTTPS. But it moved to this reasonably specified private layer. We should do the same with blockchains. You know, we had this, this great 10 year period at the beginning of cryptocurrencies where yeah, sure, everything can be public on the Bitcoin blockchain. But if we're, if we're sane and reasonable and value business and value privacy as just a general good, we should move to a world where everything is now encrypted by default. Um, yeah. And that doesn't mean that's not like an apocalypse for law enforcement. That's not going dark. That's just good infrastructure. I've used a lot of exchanges over the years and they all seem to have their problems from a lack of volume to bad buggy UI or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books, and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus, Femex. P-H-E-M-E-X dot com slash A slash bully. Again, Femex dot com slash A slash bully. Check it out. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. And it, you're starting to see more tension now. I mean, with, with the DeFi stuff, like we're starting to bang up against this pretty hard when it comes to like people, you know, farming money and like, you know, lending custodial funds in exchange for, computing power and all of these different cool things you're seeing built on DeFi, you're sort of like, well, should all of this be super public on the Ethereum blockchain? Yeah. And I, I'd say maybe not. And I know there are folks working on um, solutions for that, but th those can't come soon enough in my mind. I totally agree. I used to do demos um, for sometimes for law enforcement <laughs> or for at least for other lawyers 
of smart contracts. And so I had a MetaMask wallet in Chrome and I, uh, I did some demos where I would um, gamble using roulette. Do you remember roulette? It was like, oh, yeah, sure. It was, it was I remember that. One of the first like um, Ethereum based roulette gambling applications that was, you know, provably a fair because uh, mm-hmm. it's using a smart contract to determine where the ball rolls on the, on the roulette wheel. And so I, I gam- a small amount of money at the time, actually, I think I gambled uh, using roulette in front of a, a, a live audience, uh, which may or may not have been legal. I think that's a very complicated <laughs> question, but yeah, it was a state demo. by state, right? It was state by state. And I, I can't remember what state I was in because I think I flew to this conference or something. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I left some Ethereum in that MetaMask wallet. I think it was like, I think it was like half an ETH or something, mm-hmm. which at the time was like 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. And then like, a year goes by and I still have the same MetaMask wallet and I'm demoing um, Peepeth, which was the Ethereum-based Twitter where you mm-hmm. could pay a little bit of Ether to tweet. And so I created a Peepeth account with the same MetaMask address where I like tweeted like, hi, I'm Peter from Coin Center. And this was again for a demo, I think for a congressman or something like that. And then later, I think I, I used uh, one of the early uh, Radar Relay uh, DEXs to trade some some ether for something i don't remember as another demo and like so i've left these breadcrumbs on the ethereum blockchain uh potentially illegal gambling (laughs) uh announced myself as peter van valkenberg on uh, a censorship resistant twitter using the same address and traded some really weird shit um (laughs) and and then at some point later someone was like dude you have a metamask account with like a thousand dollars in it <laughs> because <laughs> Ethereum went from like whatever it was to whatever it was at the height of 2017. And the guy was like, you shouldn't keep that much in, in a MetaMask account. I was like, you're totally right. I forgot about it. And so, yeah, this is all garbage. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That doesn't <laughs> like, make sense. Like I haven't done anything like wrong, wrong. Um, but I've done things that, you know, probably shouldn't be public knowledge, uh, mm-hmm. just, just as a, as a, as a, as a reasonable means of protecting my privacy as a, as a, as an advocate, uh, for, for the humanitarian uses of this technology and for the censorship resistant aspects of this technology. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's garbage. Yeah. Uh, I, I like Ethereum a lot, no offense. And they've gone a long way to, to incorporate zero knowledge proofs into Ethereum, although I don't know how how bullish I'd be long-term on, on scaling, uh, with Ethereum and zero knowledge proofs, but there are people who know a lot more than I do as far as that's concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned sort of this, um, tension amongst the regulators with, you know, you have the New York and the other state regulators, and then you have the DOJ and other regulators. And you you know, you probably saw the DOJ report that came out last week about privacy and cryptocurrencies. And they were very skeptical and critical, um, of, you know, privacy generally, and more particularly on, on blockchain networks. So do you think we're, we're heading away from it? Or, I mean, you probably know, know more than a lot of people on this topic, sort of what the regulators are thinking, what Congress is thinking, um, how the sort of current political environment will impact this. Like, I'm just sort of curious where you think we're headed because a lot of lawyers I talk to are like, shit, yeah. It seems like regulators are are really keen to come down hard on this stuff. Yeah, I, so agreed. There's a weird panic in the air right now. And I'm not ready to say that the panic is totally unjustified because there are some worrying signals. 
But as far as what we've actually seen from um, regulators, as far as enforcement actions and, and guidance that's been offered about how they interpret the law, there's no reason to panic. Um, so like in, if you look at the enforcement actions, most recently we had BitMEX. Um, BitMEX apparently never filed a SAR, at least that's mm -hmm. what's alleged, which Eesh. is like, okay, yeah, that's a Bank Secrecy Act violation. You were obligated to file SARs. Um, and it's, it's impossible to believe that there was never a suspicious, set, uh, you know, transaction on your platform. Cause yeah. And we're not talking like $5 either. <laughs> yeah. These were like billions and billions of dollars moving across BitMEX. Yeah. And, and so, you know, of course, BitMEX is regulated because they're a custodial exchange with us customers, which means they got to comply with the bank secrecy act, just like PayPal and Venmo do. And so there's nothing surprising to me about this enforcement action. If the facts are as alleged, and I, I, I don't know but I'm assuming the facts are true as alleged. This is a very obvious and reasonable enforcement action for FinCEN and the DOJ to bring. Um, you look at other enforcement actions like BTCE, you know, that was the, the, the exchange that was hosted on a bunch of anonymous S3 buckets from Amazon. And there were folks abroad who might've been controlling those, those servers, uh, Alexander Vinnick, um, these, this was an exchange that was the common destination for ransomware in order to turn it, turn it into local currency after you got the Bitcoin payment. Um, and it was completely non-compliant with US laws. They never registered with FinCEN. They never did any compliance. So that's an obvious enforcement action. Um, the, the worrying thing, oh, uh, and one more thing. So, so FinCEN offers guidance in May, 2019. They previously had offered guidance in 2000. Uh, did I say 19? 2019. They previously yep. had offered guidance in 2013. And in all of these official statements of their interpretation of the Bank Secrecy Act, they repeatedly say things like, you have to have independent control over customer funds to be classified as a money transmitter and have to be subject to the BSA. If you don't have independent control, see a decentralized exchange, see a multi-sig participant who has one out of three keys, then you're not regulated. Like that's crazy reasonable from a regulator mm -hmm. to say, look, we're not going to be overbearing and interpret our laws in, in the broadest way possible. We think that, you know, either you're a Coinbase and you have full control over customer funds, in which case you're a money transmitter and you got to know your customers or you're a software developer or some other non-custodial person. And you're not obligated to surveil your customers then because maybe you don't have customers, but even if you do, you don't have custody of your customers' funds. And so you're not a money transmitter. You don't need to do surveillance. So anyway, I see no reason to panic based on those enforcement actions being reasonably targeted at persons who are obviously doing something, if the facts are true, that is non-compliant. Mm -hmm. And the guidance being very reasonable, narrowly scoping the application of the Bank Secrecy Act strictly to custodial exchanges and not going into the world of software developers or multi-sig participants. So why are people panicking now? Um, they're either wrong, which sometimes Coin Center is the voice out there in the wilderness being like, things aren't that bad. Stop <laughs> panicking. Like, honestly, we do that more than we like chastise government for being overbearing. Um, some people might even think that we're captured or something, but that's ridiculous. Um, so, either people are wrong to panic or there is some other stuff going on. And I'll say that there is some other stuff going on. Um, the financial action task force, which is the you know, uh, intergovernmental international organization that sort of codifies or makes recommendations that are effectively, uh, that are effectively law for the, the member states um, for anti-money laundering policies uh, has come out with some, 
somewhat worrying forward-looking statements about the long-term issues that uh, self-hosted wallets and, and, and privacy-protecting cryptocurrencies could present to law enforcement. And so FATF's official recommendations are in line with FinCEN. They say, you know, if, if you're not a third party holding other people's crypto, you're not obligated to do anti-money laundering stuff. Um, so so the, their, their official recommendations are good, but their forward-looking statements about where there might be problems are something to, to, to keep an eye on because their okay. forward-looking statements say, yeah, right now we're only regulating um, custodial cryptocurrency exchanges. But looking down the road, member states that have trouble addressing issues of money laundry or ransomware and things like that might want to think about how they regulate self-hosted wallets, might want to think about how they regulate private cryptocurrencies. Hmm. And so, so that is a worrisome forward-looking statement, but it's vague. It offers no specifics. It does not force any of the member states to adopt any new policies with respect to those technologies. It just says this is something on the horizon. So... I definitely don't think it's right to panic right now because that wouldn't be helpful to anyone. Panic is just generally unhelpful, but it is, it is now the right time to start watching this space very carefully and, and build the arguments that we're going to need over the next four years to defend self-hosted wallets as an unregulated category of activity, because it should be unregulated because it's your, it's your basic fundamental right to hold your own stuff, you know, yeah. whether it's in yeah. the physical world or the digital world. And so we might need to fight that battle. I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not saying we got to go to DEF CON. Um, is a high number or a low number? Good, bad for DEF CON? I think high number is bad, but I, <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. I'm, I'm not ready to go to DEF CON 5. I'm not ready to go to any DEF CON. But, sure. you know, we, we got we to gotta keep an eye on this because this could be a problem going forward. So for our listeners, can you just explain quickly what FAFT is? because <laughs> i know you and i are like oh yeah sure but i yeah. think some people listening might be like no totally and i did a very that? i did a very ham-fisted job of explaining it briefly uh, just a second ago so um so every country has its own laws for anti-money laundering right um and this is in the u.s the bank secrecy act but there are similar laws in the european union at the member state level um and these are the laws that say you need to know your customers, you need to check in with the financial surveillance regulator, you need to file suspicious activity reports if your customers are doing weird crap. Um, it's this big warrantless surveillance regime, surveillance regime, right? Um, uh, and it, it all happens without warrants, which is always worth noting. So every state has their own law, uh, but that, of course, is not something that some states would like because the U.S. notoriously likes to have a very strong anti-money laundering laws in place and a lot of visibility into the international flow of funds to stop money laundering and to enforce sanctions where the U.S. says we don't want people trading with Iran. We don't pe want, want people doing commerce with North Korea because this is how we enforce U.S. foreign policy. Now, in order to get similar laws in Europe and in Asia and in Africa and South America, the U.S., along with other powerful nations that also believed in strong anti-money laundering uh, regulations, created and joined this multi-state um, association called the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF. And it's, 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 it's a body that meets 
quite regularly. And so like from the US, the FinCEN folks and the and the other folks at the Department of Treasury are the members and they go and they represent US interests at this organization. And all other nations um, have become members, probably through fairly strong, um, you know, pressure from the US. You know, if you want to trade with the US, you should join FATF, that kind of thing. So everyone's now a member of FATF, all the major nations around the world. And they come up with standardized anti-money laundering laws in the form of recommendations. So it sounds light touch, um, but it's really not. Basically, if, you're, if your country is a member country in FATF and FATF has a recommendation that there be a suspicious activity reporting requirement and your country doesn't adopt laws that enact that recommendation, you're in deep doo-doo as far as FATF, and you might have sanctions imposed upon you by some of the FATF member states or things like that. There's a lot of soft power that would be brought to bear to get you to follow these voluntary recommendations. And so it's this way of homogenizing anti-money laundering uh, policy globally so that even in Brazil, they're filing the same type of suspicious activity reports as Estonia, as the US, as wherever, you know? Sure, yeah, that's super helpful, thanks. so, you know, I might jump to Coin Center and what what you guys are working on and focused on right now. Um, I, I know I, I saw some blog posts about some potential legislation here in the states, um, some congressional developments and things like that. Uh, is there anything in particular you guys are focused on? Is it more tax? Is it more um, policy? Is it more regulatory? So. I guess the first thing I'd say is, especially where we are right now, we're like firemen. Um, we're sort of sitting around waiting to, to slide down the pole and rush to the agency that's doing something silly mm-hmm. to the extent any of them do something silly. And we've always been firemen or, you know, I used to say this before Game of Thrones had that terrible finale. Um, we used to think of ourselves as the, the Night's Watch. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, but then Game of Thrones turned out to be horrible. Uh, anyway, um, and it's important because, you know, actually we think the black letter law on cryptocurrency is quite good right now. As I said, FinCEN has been clear. They only regulate custodial exchanges. Uh, we could briefly talk about the SEC. They've been clear that they don't see decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin as securities, which means that those things can trade off of national securities exchanges. And we're not going to expect Satoshi Nakamoto to come register Bitcoin as a security, which would be nonsense and terrible. Um, And so if the policies are generally good right now, uh, we don't, we don't actually want much from Congress as far as creating new laws. We don't want much from the agencies as far as reinterpreting the laws. We just need to make sure that we've still got good connections with the people in Congress and at the agencies so that if there ever is a change in policy, we can be there to say, actually, you had it right the first time. Please don't change it. Or if mm-hmm. you're going to change it, change it in this way that's friendly to innovation. Sure. So most of what CoinCenter does remains a sort of like prophylactic we're there to, to make sure that things don't go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. There are some, some sort of active things that we're doing right now. We've been working with members of Congress who've been interested in further refining the jurisdictional divide between the CFTC and the SEC as far as regulating exchanges and underlying cryptocurrencies. So this is a big topic, but you know some cryptocurrencies at least in their pre-sale moments, if they have an ICO or something, are going to be regulated as securities, right? Because uh, just to repeat the oft-repeated 
oft repeated Howie tests, there's mm-hmm. an investment of money with an expectation of profits relying on the efforts of a third party promoter or, or, or um, manager. And so if it is a, a security uh, under that flexible standard, the SEC's got the power. You know, you need to register with the SEC for your pre-sale, and a lot of folks have done that, um, at, at least, or they've 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 fallen into exceptions or exemptions from the registration requirement, like Reg D and things like that. But once you launch your token on your decentralized network, assuming it's really truly decentralized, and you could get hit by a bus, and the network would continue functioning, kind of like you know Satoshi could get hit by a bus, or like a crazy person could start impersonating him, which is exactly what happened. Um, and the, the, the thing nonetheless works fine, then it's probably not a security anymore, right? Because now there is no third party promoter upon whom investors are relying for expectation of profits. So at that point, it's just a commodity. And that means that if there is any federal regulator on point, it's the CFTC, the Commodities Futures um, Trading Commission, not the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, that is the regulator on point. So we've got this divide between the SEC and the CFTC jurisdictionally. When is there a handoff, if you will? Mm-hmm. And so there's two bills in Congress right now, one from Representative Emmer's office. Um, that one would sort of clarify that an asset that was originally sold as part of an investment contract is not necessarily a security itself if the original investment contract has been fulfilled. So the way this applies to cryptocurrency, if I promise you I'm going to build Peter Coin in two years, give me $20 and you'll get two Peter coin in two years. That's a security because you're trusting me to build Peter coin. But if I build Peter coin and it's basically a truly decentralized cryptocurrency at that point, it's, there's an asset Peter coin that was associated with an investment contract, the presale that I negotiated with you, but the asset itself is not by default a security simply by being part of that original contract any more than like in the original case of, of Howie, which is the case that created that investment contract flexible test language, the land that Howie was promising to his investors um, is not itself a security simply because at one point it was wrapped up in this scheme that Howie was promoting where you buy the land and Howie will pick the oranges and give you the profits of the orange growth. It's not as if the land is always tarnished as a security. And that point was always obvious in the physical world. It's like, if I buy the land that was once part of Howie's lame investment scheme in Florida now in 2020, it's not like I'm buying a security. I'm just buying land, obviously. Sure. But it's a little harder to think of how that works in the metaphysical world of cryptocurrencies where these things become effectively like physical objects um, in the sense that like, I, can, I can own it and no one can take it from me. Um, that kind of thing, you know, except through threat of force or something where I hand it over to them. It's like a physical object, even though it might've originally been created in some sort of legal construct in this ICO or presale agreement. So it's a little tricky and representative Emmer's bill would simply clarify that division, um, by refining the definition of what a security is very subtly in a way that I don't think goes against sec policy. Although, I'm not sure the SEC ever likes legislature uh, coming in and, and re, redefining their, their jurisdiction, but we'll see. I'm, I'm hopeful because I think it's good. So would you guys come in and actually be like, hey, representative, we're here to help. Can we help draft? Or would it just be more like you go to their office and sort of explain to the legislative aide who may be drafting the bill to you know, give them more clarity or guidance on how these systems work and sort of the, the legal issues yeah. at play? It's an iterative process. Um, Usually we come in at one point and we explain to a member or their staff how these technologies work and some of the hot button issues in the space with respect to regulations. And if that 
that member or their staff, usually it's more a, an interested member of their staff that really thinks this is interesting and cool and worth pursuing. If that member thinks, oh, well, maybe we could fix some of those issues, um, they'll often develop some sort of first, first draft of some language um, and we'll come in and say, uh, I think that makes some sense. Maybe we could change some things to make it clearer or, or maybe you, you, you nailed it. We don't need to come in and, and offer, you know, changes. It's always an iterative process. Um, and at the end of the day, a bill is sort of introduced and, and, and that's not the end of the process because at that point, you know, more people will come in and lobby to have the language changed or members will amend it because they have secondary concerns or they, they don't think it was done the right way. It's an, iter an iterative process that mostly happens in public. Uh, mm -hmm. It shouldn't be thought of as some sort of backdoor negotiations <laughs> or anything like that because it's really not. Um, sure. What uh, I know you probably can't speak too much on this, but I'm just curious to hear your general thoughts on the upcoming election and what would happen in particular if Biden and sort of uh, Congress is swept by a blue wave or something like the at least the polls are predicting. Um, do you think that would change anything from a regulatory or legislative point of view, or is it just sort of business as usual for you guys? You know, we've, we've always back four years ago um, or almost four years ago now when it was Hillary Trump, we, we gamed out, um, you know, priorities that would probably be slightly divergent depending on whether Trump or Hillary won. Um, and the same is true now. Uh, but just in general, we're lucky that cryptocurrency has remained pretty nonpartisan or even bipartisan. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the, we were, um, pretty central to helping house uh, mem members of the house of representative form the blockchain caucus back in, I think it was like 2016 and the, the founding members of that blockchain caucus, which was you know, caucus is just a working group of, of congressmen who decide and, and congressmen and congresswomen who decide to like focus on a particular issue area and talk about possible future legislation in that issue area. And they become sort of expert in it. So the Blockchain Congress's founding members were Representative um, uh, Polis, who is now the Democratic governor of Colorado, and like honestly one of my favorite people. He's he's a boss. Uh, if you live in Colorado, <laughs> you're lucky. You got a great governor. Um, and uh, his co-chair was actually um, Congressman Mulvaney, who ended up in the in the Trump administration. Um, so you, know, you, you could hardly ask for a more diverse um, two gentlemen to, to ideologically diverse to found the blockchain caucus. And, and since that, that sort of highly visible first step in, in Congress, it's, it's remained solidly bipartisan, which we do not want this to be partisan. Like I, I worry sometime when a, a, a particularly visible Democrat or a particularly visible, visible Republican become too pro Bitcoin, because and, then I worry that the other side will be like, ah, uh, the Republicans are all about Bitcoin. Obviously Bitcoin is against the liberal agenda, you know, sure, <laughs> sure. Like, I'm like, no, no, please just, <laughs> please just leave us alone. <laughs> but so, yeah, I, I, there, there are some, I think we're, we're, we're lucky that um, Biden is a pretty middle of the road uh, mm -hmm. candidate. I, I, I don't think we'd see anything crazy from Biden. Um, 
uh, Trump is for all his controversy has been relatively hands off with cryptocurrency um, mm -hmm. to the extent he's even interested in it. Um, so I, I, I don't think there's a, a highly consequential election uh, with respect to cryptocurrency sure. coming up. Obviously it's, it seems pretty contra uh, consequential as far as a lot of other issues. <laughs> right. I won't, I won't offer any opinions on, on that. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. You can get my takes on Twitter on that. <laughs> um, so one final question. I know um, Brian Brooks recently went over to the OCC. The OCC has been, uh, I think, relatively progressive over the last five years, trying to get this sort yep. of FinTech charter through. Do you, where do you see it as far as its progress? Do you think now that Brooks is there, it's sort of reinvigorated? Are you guys involved with that? Because I know this is a big thing for Coin Center trying to like consolidate the money transmission landscape. So I, I'd just be curious to hear your general thoughts on all of that. Yeah. So we've been fighting. We wrote a, uh, I wrote a report two or three years ago saying we badly need a federal alternative to state money transmission licensing. And that's both because, um, you know, it's silly to ask a company to get 53 licenses just to have us customers. And that's basically where we're at with state money transmission licensing. You got to get a license from every state and territory that requires license for money transmission. Um, it's silly because it's not like uh, your 52nd or 53rd license adds any more consumer protections. It's just another criminal background check for you and your whole staff. It's just another examiner that's going to be in your offices at some point in the year. Um, it's kind of crazy for a global technology to be regulated at the state level, let alone yeah. even the national level, but you know, we're not getting rid of nation states anytime soon. So like, there should be one federal license or charter as an alternative to going and getting 53. And, it, and, and the great thing about a FinTech charter offered by the OCC or just any national bank charter offered by the OCC is it's optional. So if, you know, Coinbase or Kraken or whoever are happy with their 53 licenses that they finally got like Pokemon, they caught them all. They can keep that. They don't have to switch regulators. If, if they're, if they're okay with that patchwork system, they can keep that. But it's optional if you want to go try and get a federal charter. And if you succeed in getting that federal charter, then you don't need to get the state licenses anymore. So that's the best of all worlds, I think. We'll have a way to experiment between state regulation, which has sort of got its obvious downfall, um, you know, downsides, and federal regulation. Um, so, so yeah, uh, Brian Brooks has done great work at the OCC. I'm super excited to have somebody who's sort of more crypto native there, uh, as, um, acting comptroller. Uh, I, I'd love to see him there longer. I don't know, you know, it's going to depend on the election and a lot of other things. Um, and I'm hopeful that he continues to do the good work that he's been doing. For example, um, the statement that came out that said that national banks can hold cryptocurrencies. Um, that was actually Tremendous. Um, I, I will say um, that the most recent work that's come out of the OCC on stable coins um, has some interesting language about hosted wallets um, that, again, kind of is part of what's giving me some pause about the, the, the coming wave of, of regulatory rejection of self-hosted wallets. 
because um, it says that a national bank can hold dollars that back stable coins held in hosted wallets. Right. I, I'm not too worried about that language because I think what it, what it means, and if, if this is what it means, it's good, is that a bank can hold dollars that back stable coins that are issued to somebody who holds them initially in a hosted wallet. And it's true that you might then take your USDC and pay an Ethereum address that's self-hosted. And, and as long as that's okay, this is not something worth worrying about. But just every time now someone, someone makes a distinction in regulatory language between hosted wallets and self-hosted wallets, my ears are perking up because as we were saying earlier, that could be the coming fight. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think, I think hundred percent, um, it's great to have, um, comptroller Brooks out there, uh, being a crypto native, helping people in treasury and the rest of the U S government understand this stuff. Sure. Great. Well, yeah, we're, uh, we're about out of time. I, I just, <laughs> I know you work with Naraj. I thought I'd get your views on working with him. And if he, uh, if he like makes you guys eggs, I know he has his new food account. <laughs> yeah. Before the, the recording, you said like, has he made us sick of eggs? If anything, <laughs> um, uh, I'm sad that you asked me that because I thought my egg tweets uh, were even better than Naraj's. So if anyone should be making people sick of eggs, it's me. Damn it. Um, Do you guys have like egg cook-offs at coin center? You should. I'd be yeah, interested. I mean, like, we have this, we have this, uh, I've gone crazy, uh, at some point, uh, in, in nutritional research as a, as an amateur. And I think that like vegetable oils are killing all of us, uh, and we should all eat more saturated fat. And, <laughs> and Jerry, our executive director has been keto for a long time. Niraj is notoriously not keto, um, to the extent that, <laughs> Uh, some of our staff who I won't mention repeatedly call him fat, which is not nice at all. And also not true. He's, he's, he's got a nice, he's got a lithe body. Um, this is getting awkward. I should stop. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have noticed some uh, digital workplace bullying. That's <laughs> <laughs> not true at all. Okay. Grossly exaggerated, but yeah, no, it's awesome working at the Raj. He's an incredible asset to coin center. I will say apart from the the, the food blogging stuff, I'll tell a little brief anecdote before we finish up. But um, we hired Naraj, uh, Jerry hired Naraj like maybe six months in. Uh, I was there from the beginning, um, roughly. And at first, you know, Naraj was corporate communications out of VeriSign, the, the people who were trying to convince us that .NET was cool. Uh, so, <laughs> so Naraj has a, has a history of, um, of, of pumping uh, garbage technology. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so Naraj's like first year on the job, Jerry's like, he's never, he's never calling reporters with a scoop. <laughs> and I'm like, Jerry, I don't think reporters take phone calls anymore. And Jerry's like, he's always on Twitter. And I'm like, yeah, I think reporters are on Twitter. I think that's the sad state of our journalistic yeah. landscape. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, so that was back in 2014. Mm -hmm. And so obviously now everybody, um, and, and I, I'm being hard on Jerry. Jerry's actually uh, has been on Twitter longer than any of us, but now obviously everyone recognizes that all journalism happens on Twitter uh, mm -hmm. for better and for worse, mostly for worse. And having somebody like Naraj who could accumulate a 60,000 Twitter following, mm -hmm. um, I suppose that's not impressive to you, Bully, but. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> mo most of my followers are probably gone and inactive and bots anyway. So Russian, Russian robots, <laughs> Russian, most, yeah. but most, most of Naraj's are as well. Um, <laughs> but having somebody who could be a Twitter whiz, um, which makes it sound really wholesome and dorky. And it mm -hmm. actually is when you're Naraj um, mm -hmm. is, 
invaluable and we're super <laughs> lucky. We've got a, a small team at coin center and I wouldn't trade any of them for anything. I feel super lucky. Awesome. Well, Hey, thanks. Thanks again for joining us. Um, this was a really fun and informative conversation. So I appreciate your time, Peter. And, um, yeah, well, I guess we'll see how the election goes. <laughs> I, I suppose there's a possibility when this is published, the election will be done. So yeah, maybe, maybe. we'll be looking at a, a different landscape then. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, a post-apocalyptic hellscape, maybe. Uh, right. the, the Mad Max where, where I got to maintain my mining rig in order to survive. Yeah. Anyway, hopefully it goes well. Yeah. Uh, and thanks for having me on, Billy. This has been great. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.